0: A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' motivation, should be our motivation. His motivation was to be about his father's business, his father's affairs. And part of that affairs were teaching others, reaching out to them. As he said to a woman at a well that he had living water. His disciples, we noted, had gone off to get food. And they come back and he says, I have food that you don't know about. And they were wondering, did somebody bring him food? He said, my food is due to the will of God, the will of him who sent me to do his work. And so in John 17, in his prayer, he said, Father, I have glorified you on the earth. Now glorify me with the glory that I once had when I was with you. And he said he's accomplished what God has given him to do. And then on the cross, he said, it is finished. And we noted that that should be our motivation to be about God's business, God's affairs. And when we get caught in his world, in his work, you know, some of our physical needs might even be forgotten while we're busy telling others about Christ. So that's what I want to continue to build on. I built on it last week just a little bit, and unfortunately, I didn't have it recorded. I thought it was, but nonetheless it wasn't but we said that's our work and so how do we do that and we noted from the as i noted in the sermon on the mount that we are human beings not human doings meaning that the sermon on the mount gives us a lot of it gives us the essence one has said i think it was e stanley jones but the beatitudes were the essence of the essence and jesus said you have to blessed are And then he gave a quality. And I'd like to build on that today just a little bit, because one of the things that I was thinking about as I was working up that lesson and after I got done with it, it just kept rolling in my mind. How does this, how can we do this? There is a certain level in life in which, well, and things are academic. You attend some lecture and you say, that's really good, but you don't know my life. That sounds good on paper. That sounds good coming from you, but do you really know what I'm going through? And I think Jesus does know what we're going through. I know he knows what we're going through. And I'll develop into that point as we develop this lesson as well. So how do we do the Father's business? How do we become these things, as the Beatitudes point out? Well, Jesus takes it out of the realm of the academic. I think one of the things when we look at Jesus, actually, when we look at many of those who are written about in Scripture, we see them as some type of a super saint, if you will. And we're just ordinary saints. We're just ordinary people. But there was something special about David. You know, David wasn't going out when he went out and ended up killing Goliath on that day. He wasn't going out to kill Goliath. He was going out on a delivery errand. He was going out to take some food to his brothers who were at the front lines. But then he heard Goliath. And he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And we know the rest. He said, I can do this. God will be with me. I've killed a bear. I've killed a lion. He didn't do it on his own, but God was with him. Satan mocked him and laughed at him, and David killed him. God's people were just like you and me, but they were living by faith. And they rose to the occasion because God gave them the occasion in which to rise. And so when Jesus was teaching the crowd, he takes it beyond the realm of that the academic, the academic. He gives us exactly what we're supposed to do. And before we get into the beatitudes once again, it was in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's in other places as well where we see the power and the ability to do so. Peter writes in verse 20, the second half, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, starting with the middle sentence, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God, for whatever for is for it, something went on before it, right? You're patiently enduring it's finding favor with God, for you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. That's what he wants of us. Paul would say in his letter to the Roman church, in chapter eight and verse 29, and we really like verse 28 of Romans chapter eight. That's the passage that says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, For those, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Conformed to his image. And when you think about what Paul said in chapter 12, present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see, Jesus gave us the example to walk in that we should walk in his steps. In the midst of suffering, yes. But in the midst of everyday life as well, if we're conformed to the image of Christ, we're going to take on those characteristics of Christ. So as the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And though I find a parallel, and it was, I don't know how it exactly happened when I was thinking about these things, but it happened, and I'm glad. But in Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 2, a passage that I, one of my favorite, talks about Christ. And it says that Christ existed in Philippians chapter two and verse six, by the way, if you're following along. Who, although existed in the form of God, not, did not regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of a man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus knew poverty of spirit. He emptied himself. He did not count his equality with God, something to be held on to and coveted. He needed to go so that you and I might live. And so he did. And so Jesus knows, God knows what it means to become poor in spirit because Jesus showed us how to do poor in spirit. Yes, he taught it. He said that we must be poor in spirit. And he showed us the way as he left the throne of heaven, became like you and me, a man in all points. Then he said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And I am thinking about how does that tie in with Jesus, our example, that we can learn to mourn. And I think about that time in Matthew's gospel, as he looked over the city of Jerusalem And he cried, Uh, my words that he cried, Uh, but it says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. A lament. How often, you can hear his pain. You can hear his anguish. They're his people. And they didn't even know him. They didn't pay any attention to him. And then I think about his time with his good friend. Lazarus, I wonder what their relationship was like. But in John chapter 11, we're told in John chapter 11 that Lazarus was sick. His sister sent word saying, behold, he who you love is sick. And Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. But when he heard that he was sick, verse 6, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Well, when he said, let's go, his disciples were afraid because the rabbis were seeking to kill him, to stone him, verse 8. And Jesus said, we have to. And then he tells them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of his sleep. The disciples still don't catch it, and they don't understand, and they say, well, if he's asleep, he'll recover. And Jesus tells them plainly in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. You know, it got to making me think about that, how the grief and the anguish, the pain, knowing that he could have just said the word from where he was, and Lazarus would have been healed, but he had to wait. He had to wait for Lazarus to die, and when he gets to that tomb, The shortest verse in scripture, Jesus wept because Lazarus, his friend, was dead. Jesus knew that he had the power that God would raise him, and God did. But still, Jesus shows us about mourning as he mourned for Jerusalem, for God's people, and for his friend Lazarus. And then, verse 5, blessed are those, are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth gentle, blessed are the meek, the humble, also good words that could be used here, but the gentle. On one occasion when Jesus was teaching, probably more than one, but on at least one occasion we're told in the Gospels, that little children came to Jesus. And the disciples, in the crowd they were trying to keep the children away, and Jesus says no. And he took a child on his lap and said, you must become like a little child. Jesus cared. He raised a young girl from the dead. And he just said, she's asleep. And he takes her by the hand and says, child rise. And she did. Gentle, loving children. And so, you know, we sing that song and the next one on the playlist was Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves the little children. He loves you and he loves me. And that's exhibited for us in scripture as he dealt with people, as he healed children. There was a woman who had a daughter who had a a demon or who was ill. And she went to him and asked for her daughter to be healed. And he said, I've come to the lost sheep of Israel. I didn't come to you. She was not a Jew. And he says, and she implored him, and he says, is it right to give the, the, you know, the dogs the children's bread? And she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And so her daughter was healed because of her great faith. He cared about the children. Well, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, they'll be satisfied. Righteousness here in this passage could also be translated justice. It would be an acceptable translation for the word is one that means the same thing. Typically, we think of righteousness as right living, but it was justice. And that's why Jesus came, was to break the bonds of the captive, to bring about justice. And so as I was listening to Ted Kell, one of my professors at Sunset, uh, I was reminded of from his words of John. And this is right after his first miracle, the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And what does Jesus do? He goes to the temple. In John chapter two, Jesus goes to the temple. It says in verse 13 of John two, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers were seated at the, seat at the tables. And he made a scourge of the cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and the, poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, said to those who were selling doves, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Well, they wanted to know why he was doing these things. But think about it. If three million Jews are heading to the Passover at Jerusalem, They're coming from all over, maybe even all parts of the world. And they're at the mercy of their Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. Well, three million people needing 300,000 lambs, perfect, unblemished, spotless. And maybe a corrupt priest saying, I'm sorry, that lamb is not perfect. But I do have one over here in my pen that we will sell you, that we'll provide for you so that you have a perfect lamb. Of course, with three million people there, we know what happens when there's small quantity and large demand, the price is high. Taking advantage of those that come from all over simply to worship God. And then the money changers, well, the Jews had a rule, had a law, if you will, that The temple tax had to be paid in Jewish coinage. It could not be taken from the other realm of the Roman Empire. It definitely couldn't have the image of Caesar or someone else on it. This was God's temple. So all the money changers for a couple of days before, maybe a a week before, they would close up their shop and they would go to Jerusalem. And they would have all sorts of Jewish shekels. And they would gladly exchange your Roman denarius for a German for a temple shekel of course it might take two or three of those, but you know it is what it is and you again limited supply, very high demand there was no justice in that and that's why Jesus said, "You're making my father's house a house of business. God wants it to be a house of prayer it wasn't." the way God intended. Blessed are the gentle. And Jesus shows that gentleness, his concern for the people. He shows his concern for the justice because he wants things to be between man and God. And then it says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. You cannot do mercy. Oh, you can show mercy. Mercy, and it might be nice to think about, I see somebody hungry out on the street corner and give them a couple of bucks, and that's mercy. You won't even do that if you don't have a heart for mercy. But being merciful starts in the heart. Blessed are the merciful. Jesus showed us again the way. To the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he starts, he asks her simply for water. And he doesn't have anything to get it. And he talks to her and said, if you would have asked me, I'd have given you living water. That got a conversation going. And this woman, well, she was probably pretty much a social outcast. So just quickly jump over with me and we'll pick up in John chapter four, just a little bit of where she was. And as she says in verse 15 of John chapter four, Verse 15, the woman said, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And he said, Go, call your husband and come here. She said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, You have correctly said, I have no husbands, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. But what did he do? I mean, she was, uh, people didn't think highly of her probably. She was a Samaritan. After all, we know the Jews wouldn't have thought very highly of her. But now, she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. Jesus continued to engage her, showing her mercy, proclaiming God's kingdom to her. And what does she do? She returns to her city. And it says in verse 39, as she went to talk to them about coming to see him, uh, this woman from the city of the Samaritans, many belie- believed in him because of the word. The woman who testified, he told me all the things I have done. And so the Samaritans came to Jesus. They were asking him to stay with him. He stayed two, or th- or two days and many more believed in him, not just because of the woman, but because they've heard and know that Jesus was their savior. And then if we look at John chapter eight, a passage that is by some scholarly reports, you know, disputed as to whether it was added later. But I think it shows the character, nonetheless, of Jesus. This is the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And they bring this woman, the scribes and Pharisees. You know, they were very righteous people. And I say that with a bit of sarcasm, as you know. But they bring her, and they said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act in adultery, in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such one women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so they might have grounds for accusing him. They were trying to put him into a paradox. Because the people were following him, and if he had said stone her, you know, the people would have maybe been less likely to follow him. But if they'd have said, no, don't stone her, they'd have had, had, in their minds, grounds for refusing him because he wasn't holding up to the law of Moses. But he just stood there. He stooped down and writes with his finger on the ground. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, is an interesting passage along that line because of what Jeremiah the prophet said. So I encourage you to read that. I'm not going to tell you what it says today. Um, But just go back and read it and see if maybe Jesus wasn't writing something and they could see some of those up close, what he was saying. But they asked him and asked him, they pressed him. And it said, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they left one by one, the older ones first, finally down to the young ones. Because the accuser, the first accuser, the one who had the knowledge, had to do so. Jesus showed this mercy to this woman, and he looks at her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The mercy of Jesus was there. It was also exhibited on the cross when he was dying. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Can you imagine having that much mercy? Forgive them while they're killing you. That's how Stephen learned it in Acts chapter 7. Father, do not hold this sin to their account. And then blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus, we know of his temptation in the wilderness by Satan. Command these stones become bread. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. You know, I'll give you, just worship me. I'll give you all of these kingdoms of the world. And to the question of bread, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Quoting from Deuteronomy. He told them, Satan, you'll not test the Lord your God. You're taking a scripture out of context, Satan. And he said, you shall worship only the Lord your God. Jesus was pure in heart. I know that those weren't the only temptations that Jesus had to face. But those were the three major ones we read about. But you think about it. He was a man. He was acquainted with things just like you and I am attempted with. We are all facing trials and temptations. Sometimes we may succumb to those temptations. Jesus, the Hebrew writer, says, In chapter 4, and verse 14, we have, since we have a great high priest, Hebrews 4 and 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus knows and understands. It's so easy to get caught up and said, Jesus, you just can't know what I'm going through right now. Scripture tells us that he can and that he does. He has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I struggled with this one just a little bit. Part of it was my memory of Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And I just said, okay, I remember I was counting them down. I said, I'm missing one. I'm missing one. And that's the beauty of memorizing and repetitive reading it. You put it in your mind and then, ah, it's, I went back to it. I'll never forget it now. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Jesus is our peacemaker. You know, I think of that passage in Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, he has boldly now stated, he's laid out his case that all men are under sin and that justification is by faith. And he says in chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How did he do that? Well, we flip the page in my Bible, we go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. So he says, Here's the paradox of life, church. He says, It's going to take a lot for somebody to die for a righteous man, but somebody might die for a good man, yes. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved through his life, by his life. We were enemies. We weren't righteous. We were sinners. And Jesus died for us. Making somebody your friend is to establish peace. And that's something that Paul would say in one sense in Ephesians chapter two. After, been t- after telling us That we've been saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, uh, but by grace, because it's a gift of God. That we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. And then he tells the Gentiles this in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. No peace. Strangers to the covenants of God. And then he says, but now in Christ, You who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing this flesh, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. He might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. Having put to death the amnesty. So Jesus lived the Beatitudes. And then finally, as he closes and Matthew does in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we study Peter's writings in 1st Peter, grace in the midst of suffering and saying, you churches of the, of the dispersion. Yes, you churches, they're going through so much. Your faith will be proven. Just remember the hope that you have, that you remember your redemption, that you are redeemed by precious blood, the blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless. Hold true to your faith. No matter what you face, hold true to it. Jesus came and did all of that so that you and I might not only have the academic teaching of what Matthew said, what Jesus' words were on the Sermon on the Mount, but so that we would have the living embodiment of it in christ and that's how we'll glorify god as we become conformed to his image that we well that we become his righteousness not of our own but of his and so that's what it means in part as we look at glorifying god now Probably be one or two more lessons along this line to get into some practical ways of it. But I really wanted you to hear this. I think it's important for me to hear it. And, and I'm just glad that we have this time together. So I just want you to know, wherever you are, wherever you're listening, if you're here in Yuma, great. If you've shared this with someone, if you'd like to share these remarks, I can get you an audio file, a video file, post it on the Internet so it's there for all to see. If You have a need. Let us know so we can help you. But most of all, know that it's time to start walking in the steps of Christ, because we are going to glorify God one way or another, either through lives of faithfulness as we're conformed to the image of Christ walking in his steps, or, well, as Paul said last week, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every knee will bow. Some will bow in reverent worship, and some will bow just acknowledging who he is, that he is the Son of God. And sadly, it will be to hear the words of Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. So that's today's lesson. I want to thank you for being with us today. And I just pray that you would think about these things, ponder them, share them. Um, You'd be surprised what we can do with just a simple share.